Welcome to CounterPoint, the Counter Narrative Projects podcast. This show amplifies the voices of Black gay men through conversations with thought leaders, creatives, and activists. I am your host, Johnny Cornegay. You can follow us on Twitter at Building Desire, and you can like us on Facebook at The Counter Narrative. Joining us today is Dr. Kevin Mumford, author of the book, Not Straight, Not White, Black Gay Men from the March on Washington to the AIDS Crisis. Dr. Mumford is the Director of Graduate Studies and Professor of History at the University of Illinois. His research focuses on race, politics, and sexuality in modern America, and how struggles over social difference and belonging unfolded in cities and institutions. Dr. Mumford, welcome to the show. Thank you very much for, for inviting me. No problem. Thank you. So your book opens with the dedication in memory of a lost generation and in hope for the next. Can you talk to us a bit about the, the dedication and give us some context on why, what that dedication means to you? Okay. Um, I will say that I had some trepidation about this, about this dedication, mm-hmm. in part because I felt that it was maybe maybe it sounded sentimental, but it really talks, I mean, it really speaks to two major issues. One is autobiographical, that I sort of came of age, I was in graduate school, at really the emergence and, and the, um, the power of the AIDS crisis in the late 1980s and early 1990s before there, were, before there was any drug therapy in sight. Mm-hmm. And it also speaks to my my figures who, all of whom, everybody in my book, all the cast of characters in my book, they die uh, in the late 1980s or early 1990s, Mm -hmm. Um, three of them from AIDS and two of them, Baird Rustin and James Baldwin, from natural causes. Um, And so there was a sense at which this was a generation that people had forgotten Mm -hmm. precisely because they had died young before they were... um, you know, before they were able to make a full contribution, or maybe had sort of forgotten in terms of that, that these were black gay men in the case of Weston and Baldwin, who are often seen as larger-than-life figures but not understood um, necessarily as, 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 as real contributors to the black gay struggle. So mm-hmm. that's kind of the, the, the context for that, both personal and historical. You know, one of the things that we um, end up talking a great deal about is the the amount of uh, history and stories that have been lost over the years, because mm-hmm. because, as you indicate, many of these men who um, we we. we live through their, their work, you know, the work that they left behind, but we weren't able to kind of sit at their feet and kind of learn these lessons. Is that an experience that you feel like you had as well in your work? Yes, because, um, I learned a lot about losing, Mm -hmm. um, really nobody in my book, maybe except for Baldwin, um, but the major people that I focus on uh, really wins the struggles that they engage in. Mm. They are often ahead of their times. And I mean, one thing that I learned about is people often throw around this idea of intersectionality, mm-hmm. of having multiple identities um, and, and, and sort of the need to recognize this, particularly, I guess, um, feminists have pioneered that idea. And, and, and you know, people are aware of it, students are aware of it. But this was an intersection 
at race and masculinity and sexuality, that was very, very difficult to overcome. Mm-hmm. That it was very, um, um, these people were often the only people in the room at, uh, at a civil rights group, at a gay liberation group, um, at, um, at, a, at a historically black college and university, um, at the Pentecostal church, right? Mm-hmm. So they were, they were always um, marginalized, and it wasn't something that people just came around to. You know, it wasn't like a black gay Catholic activist can just win. Right. He doesn't win. So that was something, you know, that I, I also learned about in this book was that um, learning to accept loss or mm-hmm. seeing loss is not a personal failure, but as a structural, as, as a structural um, effect. Mm-hmm. But that's what intersections of power often look like. Yes. And, you know, I'm glad you you kind of talk, talked about the idea of intersectionality because um, Lorraine Hansberry is highlighted at the beginning of the book. Mm-hmm. And um, this is a book, of course, largely about black gay men. Why right. did you yeah. make the choice to kind of introduce her the way you did? Yeah. Well, you know, and I also I, I present a slideshow, and she's the first slide, right? Mm-hmm. So I have the slide of the black gay man, and then she's the first slide, and people sort of start chuckling when I point that out. Mm-hmm. So part of it was I couldn't resist. Mm-hmm. So there's this moment in 1963 when um, the Attorney General um, Robert Kennedy invites Baldwin to gather people that are close to him to have a conversation about the civil rights movement at, at a moment of crisis in the civil rights movement. And um, and the meeting falls apart in part because Lorraine Hansberry yells at the attorney general right. and stalks out. So so it's a great moment, but it's also so fascinating because um, recently in 2013, the 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 estate, the, the Hansberry estate, the Nemiroff estate, which was her husband, ex-husband released a box of materials that had for years and years and years been restricted so the researchers couldn't look into this box. And they released it, and I was one of the first people to see it. And it's a, it, it is it is a um, fascinating collection of materials that attest to, to Lorraine Hansberry's lesbian desire, mm-hmm. her relationships to women, to the fact that she was a, um, a close follower of the homophile movement, which is sort of like the precursor to the gay liberation movement, but she had all the journals ladder and one, um, that she had diaries that had very explicit um, um, mentions of, of her desire for women, going back to when she was um, an undergraduate at the University of Wisconsin. Mm-hmm. And I just couldn't resist kind of um, outing her in a way, mm-hmm. trying to understand how this closeted desire um, and the faith, you know, somewhat closeted by the respectability that was required of the civil rights movement, how it animated her decision to be at the head of this kind of um, strike. Interesting. This refusal to accept the Kennedy's politeness. Um, And so, and it also kind of the ways in which she's very close to James Baldwin and they comfort one another in the spotlight. Uh, And so even though it was a book that, um, it has the title Black Gay Man, which mm-hmm. is something actually that my publishers asked me to do before. It was Black Gay History. Okay. Which made it would have made a little more sense, I mm-hmm. think, with Lorraine Hansberry. But they wanted me to, to kind of um, to tighten up the title to make it more 
um, more about what the book really is about. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that's one of the kind of casualties. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but that, that, that's, that, that's why that, that's why she's there. Interesting. Um, <clears throat> one of the other things that, um, you know, there's, there's this conversation around the American military and, and of course the military, you know, from, from many pers- from most people's perspective is perceived as very macho. It has a history of not just anti-gay, but very patriarchal values. It's, you know, kind of fundamental. Uh-huh. Um, one of the things you highlight is that um, the military in world war two may have given um, black gay men kind of the courage to be fully out as gay. Can you talk a bit about that? Yeah, I don't, I heard you say that before. I don't mm-hmm. think I meant to say courage as much mm-hmm. as knowledge. Got it. So one of the arguments, one of the arguments that historians make is that, you know, people may have had certain kinds of gay desires or homosexual desires, desires for other men, mm-hmm. but it didn't necessarily have a name, right? It mm-hmm. wasn't very, it wasn't um, nearly as visible in the culture as it is today. But that in the process of being inducted into World War II, they are given um, all uh, military guy, draftees mm-hmm. are um, um, given a kind of personality test. Mm-hmm. And one of the questions on this personality test is, are you a homosexual? And so one of the arguments is that by being kind of confronted with this idea of the homosexual and then also having the opportunities to meet other men mm-hmm. abroad in World War II in homosocial context, mm-hmm. that you begin to see the formation of um, gay urban communities right after, you know, right during demobilization of World mm-hmm. War II in the, in the late 1940s and coastal cities and so forth. Um, and so that's kind of what I mm-hmm. meant, that there was this opportunity at the same time that you began to see more visibility in popular culture particularly in black popular culture, such as Jet Magazine. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you know, and Jet, of course. um, So I found that really surprising. (laughs) Um, You know, I was born in the late 70s, grew up in the 80s, and I have a particular view of Jet, you know, and and Uh the type of publication that it is. And I would have never imagined the history of stories of Jet Magazine. And right. You know, kind of, and I'm I'm using air quotes now, but, you know, um, very, you know, tabloidy, but racy stories that in, could, included um, some gay themes. Um, how do you think the change in direction of that publication was affected by the politics of the time? Well, I was surprised as well. Mm-hmm. Um, Jet Magazine was a weekly that started in 1951. And its purpose was much more, as you say, sensational or tabloidy, um, to be more of a tabloid uh, kind of um, entertainment uh, magazine, while Ebony was sort of the more respectable brother. Mm-hmm. And um, Jet Magazine um, ran many stories on what we would think, which was sort of transgressive, sensational mm-hmm. subject, like interracial marriage. They often featured people marrying across the color line. They also ran stories um, about drag balls, Mm -hmm. quite a few. So that was kind of a popular um, scene, particularly in Chicago and New York, and you would get pictures of drag queens and descriptions of these sort of contests in Jet Magazine. They also ran many stories on sexology or the Mm -hmm. science of sex that was 
really starting to um, take hold in the 1950s. And this um, discourse would mention sex, uh, homosexuality in a quite, you know, sort of straightforward mm -hmm. scientific way, declaring that, you know, 10% of all human beings have homosexual desires. And so it sort of normalized homosexuality by locating, we have problems with biological explanations these days, but by locating it in the, the biology of people, it kind of said, well, people don't have so much control over it. And so all the moralizing about it ought to stop. And Jet endorsed this. And so that's really important. They ran a lot of sexology, a lot of um, inf scientific information, and generally said, yeah, this is, a, this is a natural thing. We have to stop moralizing about sex before marriage and homosexuality. Mm -hmm. um, and they did this more than white magazines of, their, of the same sort. So if you look at kind of white working class magazines, they do not um, take on the same editorial policies. Now, the question of why that changed is very hard to figure out. Mm -hmm. um, you do see fewer stories about homosexuality going into the 1960s. It's just a fact. You know, if you plot them on a graph, there are a lot more in the 50s than there are in the 60s, and, which is sort of counterintuitive because actually, you know, pe uh, attitudes toward, right. towards homosexuality are liberalizing uh, into the 60s. And there's no easy way to find out because the Johnson uh, um, Corporation, which owns Jet Magazine, has been notoriously restrictive. They mm -hmm. have not allowed... Uh, scholars to come into their archives to look at their editorial policies to understand, you know, the decisions that have been made over over the generations. Uh, so you have to kind of guess as a historian. And one of the guesses I made is so that you know one is that maybe they were trying to be a little more respectable mm -hmm. going into the civil rights movement, which I think is possible. Um, I also think that the the kind that the nature of African American society was, was just becoming much more comp complex, mm -hmm. that every year there were more and more stories about civil rights, mm -hmm. about black activism, about black elected officials. And this black politics sort of crowded out the old sensational stories that were more, um, you know, um, um, popular in the 1950s. Mm -hmm. So that's the best explanation I can have. But I was really, yeah, surprised to see <laughs> about how much exposure there was and how it wasn't always a negative. Interesting. You know, and, and moving into the, the 1960s, into civil rights, and actually into the early 70s, you know, we had the um, emergence of, you know, the Black Panther Party. And, and there's been such mm -hmm. a, there's been a recent resurgence and a lot of discussion and, and contextualizing um, about the Black Panther Party recently, um, and, you know, including people, you know, kind of surfacing, you know, a speech from, you know, Huey Newton on homosexuality and activism. Mm -hmm. um, we don't often um, hear any discussions. I haven't seen anything about um, gay members of the Black Panther Party, to my knowledge. So I'm curious, in your research for this book, in that time period, is this something that you ever ran across? Uh, I did not. Mm -hmm. I was on the lookout for it. Um, I have seen one master's thesis from Sarah Lawrence College that had an interview with a gay member of the Black Panther mm -hmm. Party, which I did not utilize mm -hmm. in the book. Um, uh, so there are two 
two things that I did find them were, well, there's a lot I found about the Black Panther Party. I read the Black Panther, which was their newspaper, mm-hmm. and I read it from beginning to the end of the mid-1970s. And I found a fair number of stories about um, about sexuality and homosexuality. Interesting. And not too surprising because the Panthers are in Oakland, and so they're just across the bay from San Francisco, mm-hmm. which is experiencing you know a kind of gay liberation moment, a bit center of the gay revolution. So they're encountering that. They um, uh, so famously Huey Newton, uh, while on the East Coast, writes a letter to um, encourage the brothers and sisters of gay revolution and gay liberation to join in the larger revolution. Mm -hmm. And it's in response to the use of epithets and the challenge by white gay liberation to the Black Panthers to um, form a coalition. And so the letter generally says that, um, you know, that the Black Panthers should understand that gay people and lesbians have full revolutionary potential. Mm-hmm. So it's not, you know, a particularly deep understanding of gay liberation, but it, it is a call out, it's, it's calling out about kind of homophobia. There are a couple other moments. Um, Erica Huggins, who becomes a major figure in the Black Panthers in the, 19, the later 1970s, gives a speech in San Francisco in which she endorses gay liberation. Um, the Black Panther, the newspaper, also write, you know, writes articles um, after after Harvey Milk is assassinated, mm-hmm. um, uh, sees the importance of joining with uh, gay liberation with the early um, early signs of the rise of the new right in the mm-hmm. late 1970s. So they're more astute. They're not as kind of, I think they're often just portrayed as, um, in, you know, sort of knee-jerk homophobes. And that's not what I found in, in, in sort of looking a little bit closer. I think uh, a historian who could who is more networked into the Black Panther Party mm-hmm. and could do oral histories would be able to find out about um, people who were, uh, you know, gay men uh, and lesbians who were in the, the Black Panther Party. But that's just, I just wasn't at that level. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the things that um, you... Um, talk about in the book so there is the um black and white men together organization um uh-huh. and so when we move into kind of the late 19 i'm sorry into the 1970s and and um kind of discussing um you know alliances so you know black gay men um you know kind of aligned you know where where the elite where the alliances were did you find mm-hmm. in your research that there was kind of a, a heavy concentration or you know um uh alliances with white traditionally white organizations is that something that you that you saw well first of all um uh, what i found was that the center of gay liberation and then the gay rights movement from the early 1970s into the 1980s was um, was led by whites, mm-hmm. and that on the margins of these organizations there were African American men, so there were gay black men who uh, sometimes moved into leadership roles, mm. who were criticizing, often criticizing the racism that they found encountered, you know, at the level of meetings or at the level of policy. 
And that was one of the reasons that you get the formation of Black and White Men Together in 1982 with chapters that form across the nation. And it's a social group and to, you know, that they have monthly meetings and potlucks, but they also hold workshops, anti-racism workshops, and they also an anti-racism forum for the community. So um, it's, uh, a popular group. It also has its critics, people who felt that it, you know, was primarily just for white men who, who wanted to get a, who wanted to be connected to a certain kind of black men. Mm-hmm. It, had, it had people who were very suspicious of the motive, but it did good work as far as I could find going through the kinds of, um, you know, workshops and newsletters and um, um, the kinds of pamphlets that they produced. Interesting. That's the answer to your question. Thank you. Um, <clears throat> you, uh, there are several, you know, subjects, you know, in your book, we, we of course mentioned Lorraine Hansberry. You also mentioned Byard Rustin as well as James Baldwin, but there are some, there's a name that um, showed up in your book and that name was Grant Michael Fitzgerald. And mm-hmm. if you Google the name Grant Michael Fitzgerald, you have to <laughs> sift through a lot of entries to find information on the man that you uh talk about in your book so he was a salvatorian priest um yes. who he was a brother he, he was, was a brother salvatorian brother, brother. Yeah. thank you yeah. um who you know um valued sexual expression and um this is of course at a time this is a religious organization this is rare so can you right. talk to us a bit about him as well as his impact on the salvatorians uh-huh Yes. Well, I had never heard of Grant Michael Fitzgerald, brother Grant Michael Fitzgerald, um, until I was doing research on the movement for a gay rights ordinance in Philadelphia. That is an uh, an ordinance that would add homosexuality to the list of protected groups in terms of anti-discrimination. And they have a city council meeting where um, people testify for both sides in 1974, 1975, and all of a sudden, there's a lot of African-American um, clergy who turn out against, right? Mm-hmm. And, um, they're sort of like evangelicals, and they're against the ordinance. And all of a sudden, this man says, stands up and says, I am black, and I am gay, and I am religious, and I am here before God to tell you that uh, gay men and lesbians deserve God's love and, and deserve equal rights. And I'm like, who is this guy? <laughs> right. Right? This man who... You know, the, you know, has this has the gall to say these things, and his and, and he's in the transcript as brother Grant Michael Fitzgerald, and and so I made you know a mental note, and I found um, some I found a I found his organization, the Order of Salvatorians, which were located in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. And I went there, mm-hmm. and they had a personnel file. It wasn't extensive, but that was really the beginnings of my research and trying to figure out who this guy was and um, then finding out more about him in the religious class and meeting a couple of his friends. And yeah, he struggled for, um, he went to the National Federation of Priest Councils in 1975 in order to introduce a resolution that would call for greater outreach to gay and lesbian laity, Mm -hmm. right? So that ministers, priests would be um, educated about being more accepting uh, of homosexuality and seeing you know, studying this problem uh, from many angles, working with a number of study groups in Milwaukee, and then sort of bringing legislation 
which did not pass. So this is another, you know, the civil, the, the equal rights, uh, the Philadelphia equal rights measure didn't pass. This, this idea of inclusion uh, of LGBT uh, in the way, it, you know, in the Catholic, Catholic Church did not pass. But he was, you know, a real pioneer. Um, wow. He later went on television, and I found a television recording of his, um, he was, it was like a community broadcast in Milwaukee, but it was just, you know, fascinating to see him being presented as both black and gay. And he made it quite a bit out of this. You know, he said, I am black and I am gay and I understand these struggles as equal and both equally um, necessary and should both be recognized. And there's not, you know, there's not many people saying that um, uh, in 1973 and 1974. So he was, um, he was a real pioneer. Wow. Um, yeah, I was, um, I was, his story was fascinating, um, you know, and it's one of those names. So I do want to thank you for definitely highlighting him in your book, because I, I do um, believe that there will be a number of us that will be doing a lot of research on Brother Grant Michael Fitzgerald. So thank you for that. Yeah, you know, one of the things that's interesting is how, at the end of the day, when I finished this book, I was surprised by how much religion would play a role, you know, mm-hmm. not only somebody like Baldwin writing about the church, but, you know, Grant Michael Fitzgerald, another one of my characters, is a uh, uh, is, uh, Pentecostal, part of the Pentecostal church at Howard University. So there is, you know, quite a bit of um, concern about religion. I mean, as an African-American historian, I would expect that, right, that the right. black church has been crucial. Uh, to black social struggles and community life. But I just was, you know, seeing how important it was for for, um, people to reconcile their faith with their identity, that their sexual identity was really um, uh, a surprise. Mm -hmm. Um, So the quote, uh, black men loving black men is the revolutionary act of the 1980s is Mm -hmm. um, legend. And um, we've been talking about it a lot and recently because uh, it's such a, um, a lot, many, so many of us feel like it's, it's as important today as it was um, when it mm-hmm. was, when it was uh, written uh, by uh, Joseph Beam. Um, so uh, Brother Beam, as we call him, is profiled in your book. Um, his story is of course, one of great, incredible sadness and triumph. So, um, in the life, you know, goes on to become the first collection of, you know, black gay writings. And, um, you know, we still celebrate it, um, today as it is incredible in in its work. Um, one of the things that, um, it becomes illuminated in your book, um, you know, during Joseph's life is, you know, kind of this sense of loneliness, um, mm-hmm. From your research um, into Joseph Beam's life, um, how did loneliness affect him? Well, you know, first, it's interesting because I find Joseph Beam to be a very, very moving figure, right? Mm-hmm. That I remember the first time I opened up his, uh, his collection of mm-hmm. papers at the Schomburg, and I and the first file had his uh, death certificate. Mm. Um, and it also had all these rejection letters. Like he was applying wow. for these jobs. He was a waiter and he didn't want to be, a, he wanted to do something else. And he kept, you know, trying to get a foothold um, in this you know, kind of worsening economy. And he was, you know, he wasn't getting anywhere. And which was sort of sad and for it to be somebody who you know has died from AIDS, but you've actually never looked at the rejection letter in your hand. 
um, and it was it was very moving. And as you go through his papers, there's you know one of the things that's fascinating is that you know he lived in the studio apartment in Philadelphia, uh, worked at Giovanni's bookstore, mm-hmm. and just was an avid correspondent, um, mm-hmm. and wrote you know typed letter after letter to you know thirteen boxes full of people. Wow. Wow. I um, mean, it's really, no, it's fascinating. I mean, he just wrote and, you know, typed these uh, to, you know, all the people in the anthology and then, you know, 50 more. And uh, so part of it was a way for him, you know, he obviously had a telephone, mm-hmm. um, but part of that was a way for him to reach out mm-hmm. um, and to stay connected to the community. And obviously he was a community organizer. He saw himself in the mold of sort of Audre Lorde and Barbara Smith that he wanted to, that's where he got the idea to make an anthology, that he hoped to make a living as a writer, and um, immersed himself in all the community institutions, Philadelphia, Gay Lesbian Task Force, and on and on. But at the same time, anybody, you know, people who knew him talked about his sense that, you know, he had a kind of palpable sense of isolation. Wow. Um, Essex Hempler wrote this, you know, wrote a very famous poem about his loneliness, mm-hmm. and you can see it. Um, part of it is that he uh, he had these romances that never worked out. Mm-hmm. So you can see this correspondence with these lovers, who I'm not, I can't quite always figure it out because they don't have last names, and I didn't find them because they didn't have last names. But they seem like they may be bisexual, mm-hmm. not necessarily in the community because sometimes he's writing to them and he's wanting them to come out and they won't come out to the, to a bar with him. Um, but in any case, there are a number of relationships that are, that he is, he is more invested than the other guy mm-hmm. and they don't turn into something that's truly satisfying. So there, there's also that, I mean, being a historian reading about that, I didn't write about that mm-hmm. um, too much, but I mean, with anybody who goes to the Schomburg and sits down with his letter, that's a pretty, pretty uh, clear or obvious um, loss in his mm-hmm. life. Uh, so I think the loneliness label, or the, the kind of myth of loneliness, I mean, he dies in his apartment alone, mm-hmm. which is kind of one of the more famous um, um, truths of his life, mm-hmm. that you know he was sick, he didn't tell anybody he was sick, uh, or he didn't, he didn't tell anybody that I've heard from, or that I know that he was sick. And so there was this kind of idea that how could somebody so um, dedicated to the community be alone at the time that they die? Mm-hmm. Um, that's a good question. I, yeah. I actually, you know, I, I, I'm not sure why being um, apparently, um, you know, um, decided not to not not to disclose his his HIV status, but he, I'm not, I'm, I haven't found it where he has. Mm-hmm. Wow. Thank you so much. Um, a fascinating book, um, wonderful subjects. Um, and so Dr. Kevin Mumford, uh, is the author of the book, not straight, not white black gay men from the March on Washington to the AIDS crisis. Um, that book is available. You can get it in your local bookstores as well as online. Um, Dr. Mumford, I want to thank you for joining us on counterpoint today. Oh, thank you so much for having me and for for having this uh, podcast project. It's great. No problem. Thank you so much.